Good morning. What up, the whole entire world? Anchor FM, Spotify, Castbox, the whole entire world. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning to you. And today, this particular opening of the show and broadcast podcast on my Anchor FM. Today, I want to talk about African mythology. So. Want to have uh, people to educate you on African mythology, uh, deities that are African. So, at the very end of the show, I will have my final thought on it and give a little insight of it of what I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I did not know anything about African mythology. I just found it out. I learned something today about African mythology. <clears throat> so here today on Anchor FM broadcast is the opening of the show. I am Dre Waz, Dre Waz Conqueror. At the very end of the show, you know, hit up my uh, cash app. It is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell Seven. I repeat, dollar sign Lucian Jarrell Seven. My cash app. Send your donations. I appreciate it. Um, all that. Morning to you. And here is my social media commercial. Stay tuned. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, the whole entire world? Spotify. Follow me on my Facebook account that is Dre Wise Conqueror. Also, look for uh, and check out my um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video catastatics, produced, edited by me, Dre Wise. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and Castbox and Apple Podcast. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look forward and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video exercise video brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me. Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise. Count your count your peace and farewell and stay tuned. Of, of the Yoruba uh, diaspora, we have an amazing story called Oshayotura. Okay, and in Oshayotura, what happens is all these deities come down from the heavenly realm onto the planet Earth, right? And the dominant ones, uh, the ones who are doing the most, are Obatala, the Lord of the white, the king of the white cloth, the lord of the clouds, 
the one who molds the child in the womb and sets the ethical standards. Uh, we have Ogun, you know, who is the tool maker and the wild man in the woods. And we have Shango, who is the lord of the flame and political organization and the ego of the human being. Okay. And they come down with Oshun. Uh, who is the goddess of love and sweet water and sensuality and, and compassion and all of that. And in the folklore, when they start out trying to create the world, uh, one of the male deities makes some comment to the effect that they really don't need Oshun. Okay. And she's very sensitive to insult, by the way, you know. So Oshun decides, oh, well, you, you'll see. And she goes and she sits on the moon and spends time looking in the mirror and powdering, and powdering her face, you know. And while she does that, all the sweet water on the earth dries up. And they can't do nothing. You know, they can't build no houses. They can't make no tools. They can't grow no food. They can't create nothing. Nothing is working because love has left the planet. Okay? And when they realize that nothing is working, they run back up to Olodumare, the one who owns the whole spectrum of the rainbow, the owner of the day. And they complain. You know, what you send us down here for if we can't accomplish nothing, right? And Olodumare says, hmm, somebody's missing from this crew that I sent down there. Where is Oshun? And uh, the comment was made, well, you know, who needs her? And that's when Olodumare summons Oshun from her resting place where she's just, you know, kicking back waiting for them to recognize what's happening when she arrives she explains that they insulted her they were stupid enough to think they didn't need fresh water they didn't need sensuality they didn't need love and so the most high makes them apologize to her okay and i love this part you know in the odu it says she accepted their apology and she told them, don't let it happen again. Okay. And as a result of that, she had to decide whether she wanted to be bothered again. And so she turned herself on herself and gave birth to Elegba. Now, I want to say very, very clearly that Oseo Tura is a very, very important story in my tradition. All of the stories we see, when they hit the tray, when they arrive in front of us, we look for the manifestation of the story around us. To have Oshun leave us is a very, very dangerous thing, okay? And we see it in things like fracking. What's happening to our water supply? We see it in things like um, the way that they are raping the queen bee. Honey is, is sacred to Oshun. We see it in, um, in the sex trafficking of children that's going on on this planet. All of these things we read as signs that we done pissed Oshun off. 
okay? And so for the last 10 or 12 years, there have been uh, priests all over the world going to the river, going to places where the river's dry, and making offerings and begging Osun to come back to us. All of this is about wanting to recognize the power of the divine feminine. video is probably just an excuse for me to play some really good Afro-Cuban music. ballet but as I got older I wanted something a little bit funkier <laughs> and I ended up um, falling in love eventually with salsa dance and Afro-Cuban dance which really goes um, hand in hand Afro-Cuban folkloric rather and the thing about Afro-Cuban folkloric that makes it really cool is there are dances that are based on the Orishas and of course these dances sort of evolve out of Santeria um, but today as they are danced in dance schools and workshops and on stages you know across the world it's more so about creative expression and what's really cool for me is you know as you dance the dance of Oshun as you dance the dance of Oya you really feel the energy that the Orishas represent so that's not the same as like feeling possessed per se but for example as you're dancing the dance of Oshun and we'll be talking about Oshun uh, quite a bit in this video um, you know, as you're rolling your shoulders, as you're moving your hips, as you are articulating your arms, and you're making these graceful, fluid movements that show off your arms and show off your waist. You laugh as you dance, you smile. You actually begin to feel that seductive, flirtatious, sensual, lighthearted energy that Oshun represents. As you're dancing Oya, you feel fierce. As you're dancing Shango, you feel powerful. You feel swift. And I love how that can almost be, I don't know, therapeutic. It can help you bring out different parts, tap into different parts of yourself. And so because of dance, I've been thinking about doing this video about the way that mythology and the way that these, you know, ancient stories can help us understand not just sort of humanity, but can help us better understand parts of ourselves. And why not start with one of my favorite Orishas, one of my favorite deities, Oshun, because I think she embodies the feminine principle, uh, feminine energy, creative energy, passion, that life force. And I think that the stories that surround Oshun um, can teach us so much as women.
Many people were introduced to uh, Oshun through Beyonce's epic and fabulous um, visual album, Lemonade. And there's that classic scene in which Beyonce appears on the top of these stair steps. And she's in this beautiful golden yellow dress. And she sort of oscillates in these scenes between joy and sensuality and flirtation and coquettishness to rage. And it's really a profound visual image. And for those who are, of course, familiar with Oshun, who comes out of the Yoruba tradition, which comes to the Americas via the transatlantic slave trade, where now we can see it in Candoble and Santeria and also in Afro-Haitian culture as well, we recognize instantly that this is a reference. Oshun is the Orisha of the river. She runs over the rivers and fresh waters or sweet waters. She really represents the best that life has to offer, sort of the things that make life worth living, the sweetness of life. She's known for having this very flirtatious, sensual, lighthearted uh, temperament. And she can also oscillate from that to, you know, if you cross her, um, you know, being heartbroken, being dark, and even, even being vengeful. And that's another aspect of Oshun and an aspect of women that we're going to address a little bit later on in this video. She is the goddess or Orisha, if you will, of sensuality, fertility, beauty, art, prosperity, and love. What I find fascinating is that Oshun is such a strong force in our collective unconscious that sometimes she actually turns up in advertisements and movies um, and popular culture in ways that we may even overlook. So in Hollywood, when you see this image of this sort of ebullient, you know, sensual woman, you know, who's walking and laughing and enjoying life, that's very much Oshun. When we see a woman emerging from water, you know, looking beautiful as she emerges in water. That's, that's almost a Hollywood trope. Again, that represents, amongst some other deities who are similar to Oshun, that represents Oshun and that association between women and sensuality and water. And Foxy Brown. Sounds like a public mess. Even in the 70s, um, Pam Greer, a lot of her roles embodied, believe it or not, embodied Oshun. And I wonder if it's intentionally or it was just, again, because these myths exist so heavily in the collective unconscious, if it was by chance. But Pam Greer would often play the roles of these sexy, dynamic temptresses who would kill if you crossed them. If you see a man anywhere, send him in because I do need a man. that Oshun is one of the most powerful Orishas in the pantheon and that a lot of times she's able to accomplish what other Orishas cannot because she's so clever and she also can rely on her feminine wiles. One of the best stories that I think um, will demonstrate the power not just of Oshun but of women in general is the story of how Oshun 
lures Ogun out of the forest. So as the story goes, Ogun, who rules over modern civilization, one day became very angry and he roamed into the forest and sort of refused to come out. And because he was in the forest and he was sort of just like fed up, everything stopped working. Civilization stopped working. The cities began to fall apart. And all of the Orishas, one by one, they came in. They attempted to lure Ogun out of the forest. And it didn't work. The last Orisha to try was Oshun. And rather than use an irrational appeal, rather than try to coerce him or force him or plead with him, she does something a little bit different. She goes into the forest and she has her signature honey pot tied around her waist as usual and she begins to dance. She's moving so fluidly and she's laughing and she's bathing herself with this beautiful river water and caressing herself and Ogun sees her and he is enamored and she doesn't say anything to him. She continues laughing to herself and dancing and just doing Oshun and Ogun becomes closer and closer and he draws nearer and nearer and nearer and finally as he gets really close to her she takes a little dip from her honey pot and she uh, smears it on his lips and that is symbolic for the seduction she shares her pleasure with him and she is able to lead him successfully out of the forest and all of the civilization can, can, can go back to working again so that's one of my favorite stories about Oshun and the interesting thing about that story as I say is Oshun unlike the other Orishas does not petition him she does not ask she does not plead she does not force she does not give an ultimatum all she does is basically she is herself in the forest she doesn't address him at all she goes into the river which is her domain and she does what she loves to do she dances she sings she laughs and she really represents the power of sensuality and sensual energy and feminine energy to do what words and rational appeals and brute force cannot do. So one of the things that I talk about a lot is soft power. And there are two types of power. There's hard power and there's soft power. Hard power is best um, defined by sort of carrot and stick power. So we go to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week mostly because somebody is paying us. If they were not paying us, you probably would not do it. That's a form of hard power. So if you've got money, you can convince people to do things because you can give them carrots. Stick power is motivating people to do things by fear. Uh, a country may have a lot of power because they have a gigantic army and so they can say if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to attack you. That's hard power. Soft power is a little bit different. Soft power is the power you get by way of attraction. The best example I can use is when a commercial is attempting to get you to buy into that brand, to want that product. Oh, 
They're not going to come on TV and for 30 seconds tell you why their product is superior and list all the facts. They're going to bombard you with music, with smiling, beautiful people, with images, with symbols. Ultimately, these brands incite a feeling that makes you feel very drawn to the brand. You want to buy into the brand. You're attracted to the brand in ways that you may not even be able to explain. And that's really the essence of what seduction is, and that's the essence of what soft power is. Another example would be France. France is um, in the soft power index. It's like 30 countries, the top 30 countries with the most soft power. France is number one. France doesn't really use its military to threaten anyone, but France uses its sort of internationalism. France uses the pull and the allure of its own culture and its rich heritage. France uses its diplomatic connections and its sense of diplomacy and its network to influence geopolitical relations. What they're really using, again, is soft power. So the ability to achieve your objectives through charm, through attraction, through persuasion, this is what we call soft power. And this is really, it's, it's an invisible power, which is why a lot of times when we define power, you know, it's brawn, it's things that are visible, it's things that we can see. And it's the reason why a lot of people feel like in order to be powerful, you have to mimic sort of the sort of traditional power structure, which as we know it is quite masculine. People often overlook the power of, of women, which really is soft power. Women created the entire concept of soft power. Remember, Ogun represents civilization. He represents iron, warfare, technological advances. So he represents really power as we've come to know it, traditional power. So the overall moral of the story is that soft power, the power that Oshun embodies, is able to accomplish things that even hard power cannot. Much like the way that water erodes rock, it appeals to pleasure, it appeals to your fantasies, it appeals to your emotions. So it is the type of power that makes you want to give in and that that's the power of women way to treat the girl that loves you they don't love you like i love you slow down they don't love you like i love you The second um, lesson from Oshun that I find particularly interesting is the irony in her story. When you really get into the legends of Oshun, the folklore, you recognize that her life really is far from perfect. And so even though she's known as a scintillating, sparkling personality, this fluid, effervescent personality, just like the water she represents, she also deals with heartbreak. She deals with devastation. She deals with poverty and at times being absolute destitute. So you have to ask yourself, how can one of the most powerful Orishas in the Yoruban pantheon deal with scenarios that suggest the absence of power? How can an Orisha who is responsible for prosperity, who represents prosperity, deal with poverty? How can an Orisha who represents the essence of seduction and attraction uh, deal with heartbreak? And um, one of the most significant challenges that Oshun um, encounters, particularly when she's younger, is 
heartbreak. And it's because she's almost so passionate and she has so much creative energy, that's what she represents, that it actually turns on her. She sort of jumps into things heart first, head last, maybe head never, you know, and particularly with Shango and going back and forth. And that really represents something that women who sort of identify with that kind of energy, very passionate women, women who tend to be artistic, very feminine, have a sort of je ne sais quoi, sort of have that a lot of that vitality, a lot of that life force within them. These are the women who tend to be very attractive, but at the same time, they're also the women who are most likely to end up in tumultuous relationships, to end up in emotionally lopsided relationships, because it's almost like they lead with that passion and they, they sort of lose their head. And I think that the lesson there is that Oshun ends up in dark situations, in dark times, when she forgets her own power. The moment she begins to look outside of her for validation and for definition, the moment she starts to yield to, you know, needing the attention of the male Orishas versus just desiring it, is the moment she gives up her power. And I love that Alice Walker quote, the, the easiest way that we give up our power is by thinking that we don't have any. The second aspect to that story is the idea that Oshun, as legend has it, when she's in her really dark, her darkest hours, you know, when she's feeling hopeless, when she's feeling desperate, she turns to sorcery. You can look at it, look at that a number of ways. I don't actually look at that as sorcery per se, you know, as that being the message of the uh, of the uh, tale, like you know, when you go through something difficult, turn to witchcraft. <laughs> like, I don't know anything about witchcraft, but when I do think about sorcery and like what it could potentially be a metaphor for, you know, I think of transformation—a sorceress or somebody who you know knew how to do magic, transform things. And when we go through really dark periods, when we go through periods where we experience powerlessness, where it feels like we don't have control over our circumstances it feels like it's just too much. Those are the times that we grow. Those are the times that we develop inner strength. Those are the, the times during those times when we develop the qualities and the character and the strength that we will need in order to get to the next height of our lives. And those are the times when we discover our ability to transform not only ourselves and to heal and to grow, but to transform our circumstances. The message that we can take from Oshun's tale and how she deals with her darkest hours is that number one, we experience powerlessness when we forget our power, when we lose sight of our power, when we hand it over to others, people outside ourselves, external forces, external circumstances. And secondly, our pain can very well be a rite of passage.
Now, this might be my favorite lesson from Oshun. Um, and it's the idea that to give pleasure, you have to know pleasure. And if you recall in the, uh, the, the folklore about how Oshun seduces Ogun, she carries a honey pot around her waist. Now, you don't really have to stretch your imagination to guess what the honey pot stands for. In one part, it does stand for like a woman's sexual release, a woman's like literal honey. Um, but it also represents pleasure. It represents pleasure, it represents the sweetness of life, it represents joy, bliss, laughter, you know, it represents um, the, the gifts to civilization, the arts, dance, music, drama, poetry. So the fact that Oshun carries this full honey pot around her waist really suggests that she carries her joy within her. So when Oshun seduces Ogun, recall, she doesn't go to him and ask for any honey. She literally takes her own honey and puts it on his lips. And read into that how you like to read it. There's the more overt um, meaning of that. But I think the more symbolic meaning is that honey pot tied around her waist represents her commitment to her own pleasure, her own passion, her own purpose, to self-care, to making sure that she is in a good place, that she is happy, that she is creating and revitalizing this wonderful energy and anyone else that should come into her life they're basically just joining the party and I think because in our society we tend to define femininity very much based on what we give to others so we define it based on mothering we define it based on loving on emotional labor um, which is a big part of what we do and it's a wonderful thing it shouldn't be overlooked there are a lot of women that are walking around with figurative honey pots that are empty and we are almost you know in that idea of waiting for a happily ever after um, or just the idea that we are here to serve everybody else but ourselves we walk around hoping that somebody will fill us up but if you know anything about attraction even attraction on the spiritual level you attract what you put out so if you take responsibility for your own pleasure, to commit to the things that make you happy, to commit to feeling good, to commit to taking care of yourself, to commit to making sure that you take care and honor your own you know, vital feminine energy, you are going to attract that back. The moment you are essentially looking for someone else to fill you up, you will attract emptiness. When you don't have that radiant self-love, you know, what you end up attracting is the absence of love right back to you. Even if someone pours into you and you don't fundamentally love yourself, it's like you're a sieve. It's just going to flow right out. Marvel has gotten political before. Never so profoundly or successfully as in Ryan Coogler's groundbreaking Black Panther. The movie does a masterful job of discussing complex issues like black identity, history, colonialism, technology, globalism versus isolationism, and the future. What happens now determines what happens to the rest of the world. But it carries on all these conversations through story. It draws on potent symbolism and a clash between characters who all make compelling cases for their size. We're used to so many superhero movies where it's pretty clear who's right and who's wrong. Black Panther shows 
shows the superhero movie's power to actually process layered ethical questions through dramatic conflict without oversimplifying and actually enhancing its entertainment value through all of this nuance and complexity. Now, I hope that this movie kind of opens up uh, our ideas of what a blockbuster is and what it can be. This is the first Marvel movie to feature an almost entirely black cast, and it's breaking all kinds of box office records. So the story of T'Challa's transformation into the Black Panther was truly a historic movie whose significance can't be overstated. My kid, I get to take my kid to go see a black superhero movie, and he gets to see an image of himself as the man. I'm not only excited for that, but then Halloween, I can't wait to see little white kids dressing up as Black Panther, man. Before we go on, be sure to hit subscribe and click the bell to get notifications on all of our new videos. So let's start by looking at how Black Panther captures so much of history and culture through symbolism. Wakanda is a country hidden in plain sight. So the symbolic message is that the world is overlooking the power of black people. But this power is far greater than the world could ever imagine. This is a third world country. Textiles, shepherds, cool outfits, all front. In the post credit scene at the UN, T'Challa is asked what his country could possibly have to offer the rest of the world, and he smiles knowingly. When Claw steals Wakanda's vibranium, this has an obvious colonial feel to it. Vibranium is a valuable natural resource, and it's being taken from the country that owns it. Yeah, it's a natural resource that kind of thrives off of. They mine it, they use it in technology. Claw is a white South African, which reminds us of the history of apartheid and the gross inequalities that still exist today as a result in South Africa. We also get the early scene in a London museum where a white woman lectures Eric Killmonger about African artifacts, but she gets the origins of the key artifact wrong. Eric corrects her and then steals these valuable items, but not before reminding her that her people stole them to begin with. So in all of these moments, the story is urging us not to forget how much white society has taken and appropriated from black communities. And we should be aware that the so-called expert, academic, and historical accounts we trust are also flawed and incomplete. So the film's implicit historical commentaries help us understand Wakanda's fear of losing everything if it reveals itself to the world. Because we know what colonialism has done to so many real countries. Wakanda is a vision of what an African country could or would be if it hadn't been damaged by imperialism and exploitation. Black Panther's multinational cast comes from countries including the U.S., the U.K., Kenya, Guyana, and Tobago. And the superpower most on display in this superhero story is blackness itself. So to be African is to be human. The Wakandans offer role models young black men and women can look up to and aspire to be. And when I was a kid, I got a chance to see Christopher Reeves. I got a chance to see Michael Keaton. You know what I'm saying? But I didn't get a chance to see Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman looks like me. Like, he looks like my son. When Okoye is forced to wear a wig, she just wants to get it off her head. This white beauty ideal is like an uncomfortable costume for her. For the Dora, a big thing for them is symbolism of their bald head. When they become Dora Milaje, they shave their head. It's something that's present in the comics, something that we really ran within this film. So for her, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a dishonor for her to ever co cover her bald head. The empowered warriors of Wakanda offer a beauty standard that's based on strength and embracing the natural. 
And this is reflected in the lighting by DP Rachel Morrison. The cinematography here helps reverse a long-standing industry bias. Kodak's Shirley cards used to calibrate their printing only featured pale skin tones for decades. Jean-Luc Godard even called Kodak film racist and refused to use it to shoot in Mozambique because it was so poorly optimized for dark skin. So Morrison's work in Black Panther, together with the images of DPs like Bradford Young, Matthew Libatik, and James Laxton, helps to undo this historical bias to use white skin as the default in cinema. Morrison makes dark skin tones look absolutely stunning, while still going for high contrast images and saturated vibrant tones. But even though the film is linking blackness across national borders, it's also acknowledging that black Americans have long been deprived of a meaningful connection to Africa. They can't trace their ancestors because of the history of slavery. This spooky thing called slavery happened and my entire ethnic identity was erased. Eric still has Wakanda inside him, with the movies showing how being cut off from your heritage like this is tragic. When T'Challa drinks the heart-shaped herb and gets to talk with his father, he's in his beautiful homeland glimpsing all of the Black Panther ancestors that came before him. But when Eric gets to visit his father, he enters their old apartment in Oakland. He sees a TV full of empty static, and he envisions his father alone, cut off from his ancestors. So the central conflict in the movie is also this complex relationship between Africans and the African diaspora, especially African Americans. The movie does something clever by initially setting up Claw as the one-dimensional villain that we might expect going in. But then Claw is killed, and it's revealed that this story is really about the far more personal and heartbreaking battle between Eric and T'Challa, both of whom we feel for immensely. One of the reasons Black Panther works so well is that Eric is a villain who's right. His anger is justified. Growing up in the States and systemic oppression really shaped his trajectory and you lose your entire family and you know you get stripped of everything thrown in the system and you let that fester and grow into into some rage. Even T'Challa actually agrees that Eric was terribly wronged by T'Challa's father and country. Killmonger is complex because you know he's gonna have a valid point. At the end of the film Eric says he wants to be buried in the ocean like his ancestors who jumped from slave ships because they'd rather die than live in bondage. It's important that Eric sees slaves as his true ancestors and not the Wakandans. For him, the African and African-American identities are irreparably divided by the history of mass enslavement. In addition to representing the African versus African-American experiences, T'Challa and Eric symbolize the historical debate between black leaders over whether to achieve progress through peace or aggression. Philosophically, T'Challa aligns with Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy of nonviolence, and Eric aligns more with Malcolm X's by any means necessary outlook, which largely inspired the Black Panthers. In Eric's childhood Oakland home, we see a poster of Huey Newton, the leader of the Black Panthers. The Black Panther comic, incidentally, was created slightly before the party was formed, although the character of Eric Killmonger was created after. Both sides of this debate want the same thing, they just have different beliefs about what will achieve the solution. And that's what makes the clash between T'Challa and Eric tragic. It's my responsibility to make sure that Wakanda does not fall into the hands of The image of the two fighting Black Panthers falling through the air visually captures this wrestling of ideas. But Eric could easily have been the hero if this were another movie. In some ways, he's a more interesting or dynamic character than T'Challa. He wasn't born a prince, and he's actually struggled. He's so passionate about what he cares, and he'll go through any lengths to, like, get what 
to achieve his dreams and his goals. By now, though, Eric has let his anger and hatred take over his entire being, to the point where he no longer has the capacity to create a positive future. In the same way that Wakanda is what an African country could be if it weren't touched by colonialism, T'Challa is what Eric could have been if he hadn't lost his father and grown up exposed to suffering, prejudice, and crime. But besides Eric's understanding of social injustice, he doesn't have the qualities we look for in a leader, and T'Challa does. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. T'Challa is benevolent and respects women, while Eric is authoritarian and violent towards women. This is a deal breaker in a community that values women like Wakanda does. In the comic books, you have these female characters that are incredibly important to the country of Wakanda. T'Challa is the right hero for this movie because his heart is in the right place and he gradually learns how to be a leader rather than coming in with a rigid point of view that can't evolve. What's interesting, though, is that in the end, T'Challa clearly does take some of Eric's ideas to heart. So by the end of the film, T'Challa's worldview is the happy medium between Eric's point of view and his father's original isolationist non-violent point of view, which means he's basically ending up with Nakia's point of view and doing what she's been telling him to do all along. It might have been a much shorter movie if he'd just listened to his girlfriend. In a way, the evil history perpetrated by white people is the ultimate villain here. But because you can't fight with the past, the legacy of that historic evil is reflected through the continuing conflicts between black characters. Another key difference between Black Panther and other superhero movies is that this is about a community, not just one guy. He's, he's, he's an African king, you know. Um, his, first, his first responsibility is to his people. In most superhero movies, the hero has to reconcile private and public identities. But here, the whole country of Wakanda has to do that. The film's about Panther, but the film's equally about Wakanda. Black Panther suggests that the key to a healthy community is balancing tradition and progress. That's what's so unique about Wakanda. At first, we see these beautiful natural landscapes. Then, it's revealed that we're looking at an extremely advanced city. So the film has a theme of Afrofuturism. It's offering an optimistic vision of the future where black people can determine what's next for them and for the world at large. And the only superpowers we actually see in this movie all come from technology or from a natural source. You've been taking bullets, charging it up with kinesis. So this symbolizes that the keys to progress are applied human intellect and the gifts of the natural world. The film shows that Wakanda is also strong because of the black women who hold up their community. It's now or never. And it underlines the importance of a father in a man's life. The disappointing father is something of a recurring trope in the Marvel Universe. Stark is, he's a sexist. Aw, Junior. Your old man's heart. But here the question of fathers and sons takes on a more profound cultural significance. Wakanda emphasizes masculine rites of passage and black fathers who are role models. Eric has the inverse experience. His dad is taken from him unjustly. So this symbolizes that systemic social wrongs are really to blame for absentee fathers in underserved communities. T'Challa realizes through his father's mistake that he has a moral responsibility to address the larger world's problems. Also, T'Challa warns Mabaku that if he doesn't help them, then Killmonger will come after the Jabari next. And that's a clear warning for us all about the importance of caring what happens to the communities around us. Because we're all much more interconnected than we often realize. Ultimately, 
in many ways, this is still a classic Marvel movie. It has the traditional hallmarks of strength and justice being lauded, a hero grappling with daddy issues, cool music, confrontation ain't nothing new to me, pulse racing fight sequences, and humor. Did he freeze? Like an antelope in headlights. <laughs> you finished. So what's perhaps most compelling about Black Panther is that it fits the whole Marvel superhero formula, but it shows what that formula is actually capable of. Let's go! It infuses the fun blockbuster with a complex villain, a deep social commentary, and an investigation of the enduring wrongs that are the legacy of our shared world history. So Black Panther opens the door for other more thoughtful, diverse, and deep blockbusters to follow in its footsteps. It's hard to believe, but Black Panther is only Ryan Coogler's third feature film. So today, we wanted to highlight his first feature, 2013's Fruitvale Station. Fruitvale Station is inspired by the police shooting of a man named Oscar Grant. It follows Oscar, played by Michael B. Jordan, on what he doesn't know is the last day of his life. I'm trying to get back on my feet. I really need this job. It's a really intimate, moving film and packs a punch at just 90 minutes long. Thanks so much for watching. If you're new, please subscribe and hit the bell to get notifications. At Sprint, our priority is keeping our customers, employees, and communities safe. During these uncertain times, get the great service you expect without leaving the safety of your home. Shop at Sprint.com for the best new phone deals, like a Samsung Galaxy phone for just $0 a month. So I wanted to make a quick video about book resources for African history. A lot of you guys have been asking about and requesting very specific topics about African mythology and religion. So I'm going to share some of my personal favorite resources for this topic. What up, African world? It's Home Team here, and I'm back at it with another video of African history, culture, and worldview. And as usual, if you like these videos and would like to support in its continued production, gaining access to sources, courses, and exclusive videos, you can support the Home Team on Patreon.com. In addition, I've created a blog where I write informational articles on African history, which includes super helpful infographics on various topics that help sum up African history in fun and creative ways. A really good resource for children and homeschooling parents. The link to all of this is in the description box below. As you know, I post all my sources on Patreon. And for the string of new videos that I've done, I'll be posting those sources soon. Africa has some of the most interesting religions on the planet. In fact, religious thought itself probably originated there. So it's no surprise that people in the diaspora want to learn more about it, as it'll help us feel more connected with our ancestors. African religion can be super complex and hard to understand. And honestly, the best source for African religion is from an African who participates in the traditional religion. But since most of us don't have access to this, the next best thing, in my opinion, is the encyclopedia on African religion. Sometimes we neglect encyclopedias because they can be a pretty penny, but this book, in my opinion, is worth it. It has really helped me simplify and understand African religion. I've used it for my Closer Look series, and I'll continue to use it for some of my coursework that I'll be posting soon. I highly recommend. Oral tradition and mythology are my personal favorite topics in African history because in a sense, it's the closest thing we have to the beginning, if you will. 
African mythology has so many fantastic stories that we haven't even tapped into yet. Honestly, we in the diaspora should be ashamed of ourselves for not recreating these stories in animations or feature films. I'm trying to do a better job myself. A book that I'm reading right now as we speak is called African Myths of Origin by Stephen Belcher. I cannot sing the praises of this book any further. It takes the oral tradition and mythology of different regions on the continent and gives a full retelling. I absolutely love this book and will continue to be using it in the future. Another book on African mythology that I've read and continue to use is called African Mythology A to Z by Patricia Lynch and Jeremy Roberts. I learned so much from these two books and they filled me with endless stories on African history that are so valuable. I highly recommend this, especially for parents looking to teach their children bedtime stories on African heroes, gods, and kings and queens. I'll put links to all these books in the description box. One last favorite of mine is simply the Encyclopedia of Africa. This is a must-have for everyone who wants to simply have access to the ins and outs of African history in general. It's simple, easy to understand, and straightforward. Now, of course, like the other encyclopedia, it's definitely an investment, but it's worth having in the home, especially for generations to come. So like I said, guys, if you're really interested in getting your own insight into African history straight from the source, especially when it comes to niche topics like African mythology and religion, I highly recommend getting these books. As mentioned, I'll leave a link to all these books in the description box. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor Africa? What up the whole entire world, Spotify? Follow me on my Facebook account, that is Dre Wise Conqueror. Also, look for uh, and check out my, um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video Catastatics, produced and by me, Dre Boss. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and Castbox and Apple Podcasts. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look for and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video exercise video brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me. Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise. Count your count your peace and farewell and stay tuned. Historically speaking, there isn't much I can say in the way of Oya, the Yoruba goddess of storms. Unlike Shango, the god of thunder, Oya cannot be contextually placed. As an Orisha, it would imply that Oya would have a human form, or that Oya was a deity existing in the spirit world. I find that the latter is probably more accurate, as finding information about her human form has been virtually impossible. Some accounts have it that Oya was one of Shango's wives, perhaps his most favorite wife. As the goddess of storms, there's an argument that Oya gave Shango his ability to control thunder and lightning. In another version, which implies that the buffalo is sacred to Oya, Shango went hunting one day in search of a buffalo. Upon laying his eyes on one buffalo in particular, he gave chase 
intention of slaying it. However, this buffalo was actually Oya, who transformed into a beautiful woman. The Shango fell in love with her immediately and carried her back to his home to join his other wives. However, because of her powers and immense beauty, she would become Shango's favorite wife. Shortly after Shango's disappearance, some saying that he killed himself after inadvertently destroying his own home with a lightning strike due to his own inexperience. Oya would soon join him and was said to hide among sheep until she became one herself. For this reason, her most devout followers are said to not permit the consumption of lamb. For the purpose of this video, I'm going to be speaking about Oya's powers mostly and how she is worshipped, as historical information and the deeper tales of her mythology are simply not available. In Yoruba, the name Oya is to literally mean she tall. While in other regions, she's known as the Mother of Nine, due to the Niger River, the principal river of where she is worshipped in West Africa, that is made up of nine streams. Oya is described as being a warrior queen, one capable of controlling the weather, similar to the likes of Storm from the X-Men. She's said to be capable of summoning tornadoes, rainstorms and hurricanes, as well as blasting the earth with thunder and lightning. Oya is also seen as the mother of Igungun Oya, a collective of spirits that represent the ancestral dead. On the subject of the dead, some see Oya as a guardian of the realm between life and death, and therefore not only the goddess of storms, but also the goddess of spirits, funerals, intuition, and rebirth. She even has the power to call upon the power of death, or can even prevent death on those she favors. Oya is said to be protective over those that she loves, but that protective nature can also lead to a destructive one if those she cares about are harmed. Oya wouldn't think twice about destroying villages with her powers of the storm if there is need for such vengeance. Although it's said to be hard to gauge her destructive nature, for you see Oya is widely unpredictable, much like the weather in some places. She can change from a benevolent, caring sweetheart to a destructive force of madness in the blink of an eye. I'd like to have put a bit more flesh on the bones of this video, so to speak, but the information out there is too vague to construct a compelling story that is authentic and honest. Still, hopefully you gain some insight into the Orisha known as Oya, the goddess of storms. As always guys, if you enjoyed this video, then feel free to give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe. Until the next time guys.
that exist within the doctrine. Essentially, you could say that Django was once a normal man, but the events in his life would lead him to be chosen by the three supreme gods, granting him powers, and turning him into an Orisha. An Orisha's purpose is to be the guidance of mortals, to ensure the consistent creativity and productivity of mankind, and to teach humanity how best to succeed on Earth. In some versions, Orisha is said to be deities living in the spirit world, whilst in the case of Django, Orisha are said to be humans who have been recognized as deities due to extraordinary feats. So what made Django so extraordinary that he'd be referred to as the God of Thunder? Well, first we should look at what we know about him historically. From a historical standpoint, and I use the term loosely based on the evidence that we actually have, he said to be the fourth king of the Oyo Empire. He was described as a violent and powerful ruler, who was characterized by anger first and foremost. Old traditions describe him as having a voice like thunder, and a mouth that spewed fire whenever he spoke. He was set to reign successfully for many years due to his ferocity, where he'd partake in raids, campaigns, and a plethora of battles. In some versions of the story, Sang's reign ended when his palace was destroyed by lightning, an ironic destruction for the would-be god of thunder. Some say that by the height of his power, he'd earn the ability to control thunder and lightning, and due to his capriciousness, he inadvertently caused the storm that destroyed his palace. He would also kill his many wives and children, causing him to leave the kingdom in disgrace, only to later kill himself out of grief and shame. It's said that after these events, Shango's enemies would mock his misfortune and laugh at his inability to control his own powers. Following these incidents, storms were set to emerge, and lightning raged down upon the empire, destroying parts of it. Those still loyal to Shango claim that this was a result of Shango's wrath, and that he was in the heavens now, a vengeful god, now watching over them. In another version of this story, Shango would be challenged by an unnamed sorcerer, whose magical talents were so spectacular that the people rallied behind him. Shango was quickly ushered off the throne by the new sorcerer, and like a firstborn child, he was quickly kicked to the side when the second arrived. He was considered a disgrace in the eyes of his people, and despite his tyrannical rule, he was now looked upon as a failure by his former subjects. So Shango missed the empire ashamed, and unable to face life any longer, he committed suicide by hanging. Those who were faithful to him, however, claim that while he had committed suicide, he wasn't dead, but instead had transcended to the heavens on a chain, potentially a symbol for the rope he had used to hang himself with. They claim that his disappearance was not death, and that the three supreme gods had transformed him into Norisha. The loyal following of Shango were soon able to secure a place for their cult in the religious system of the Oyo Empire, and grew large enough to be considered an integral part of the society. It would spread even further when Oyo became an expensive empire, and would move out to dominate other Yoruba kingdoms, many who would begin to recognize Shango as their deity. Fire and lightning are often associated with Shango, most likely because of his fierce dominance over the Oyo Empire. In Nigeria, he's the most feared in the pantheon of the Orisha, and is known for casting a thunderstone to earth, which creates thunder and lightning, striking any who has offended him. Rocks and debris that are created by lightning strikes are preserved by the Sango worshippers, 
and I'll even use that sacred fire in rituals to this day. Despite fire and lightning, the Ofei, a double-headed battle axe, is also associated quite closely with Shango. Many statues of Shango often show the Ofei emerging from his head, insinuating that like a bull, he would go head first into his enemies, showing no fear or hesitation. An Ofei is also used by the priests in the Shango priesthood, where when dancing, the priests will hold a wooden Ofei close to their chests, so as to form a spiritual protection, as well as swinging it wide in a high arc to banish bad vibes. Speaking of dance, Shango's worship has also used battered drums, in honor of Shango, who was said to use the same drums to summon storms. Let me know in the comments below what you thought about Shango, and whether you'd like to see more from the Orisha Pantheon. There is a very popular fantasy TV series that's currently running called American Gods. The series features characters that were inspired by myths from all over the world, and on this episode of Humble History, we thought it would be fun to dive into the American gods that were inspired by African myths. So let's get into it right now. The first character on our list is Mr. Nancy, who was inspired by the Ghanaian god Anansi. In the Akan myths of Ghana, Anansi, whose name literally means spider, is one of the most popular gods in the West African tradition. Anansi is a trickster god who teaches wisdom, ingenuity, morality, and ethics through the use of puzzles, riddles, and most importantly, through stories. In fact, Anansi is believed to be the king of all stories. In fact, one of the most popular Anansi stories is how Anansi became the king of all stories. And it goes like this. One day, Anansi visited Niami, the supreme god. Anansi asked Niami to make him the king of all stories. Niami is taken aback by the audacity of Anansi's request. But not wanting to simply say no, he gives Anansi a challenge that he believes cannot be done. He tells Anansi that if he can bring him the jaguar who has dagger-like teeth, the hornets who sting like wildfire, and the invisible fairy of the forest, then Naomi would make, an, would make him the king of all stories. Anansi agrees and goes on to fulfill the challenge. Anansi captures the jaguar by having him agree to play a game where Anansi ties him up. And then he goes on to the hornets and tells them that it is raining. And to escape the rain, Anansi offers them shelter in a hollow calabash. Once the hornets go in the calabash, Anansi closes the lids and traps them in the calabash. He tricked the invisible fairy to fight the tar baby. And when he did, he was stuck to the tar and could not escape. Anansi takes all three up to the supreme god Niami. And after Niami sees that Anansi has successfully completed all the challenges, he gives all stories to the spider god. Which is something that the show American Gods mirrors as Mr. Nancy's main source of influencing others is his use of stories. The next character on our list is Mr. Jekyll, who is based on one of the most popular gods 
in Egyptian mythology, Amru, god of the dead, mummification, and embalmings. Amru was often depicted as either a man with the head of a jackal, or more often simply as a jackal. He was worshipped as the god of mummification. The Egyptian priests would wear a jackal mask to invoke Amru as they perform mummification and embalming process on the dead. This makes it very appropriate that Mr. Jekyll works at a funeral home and prepares dead bodies to enter their caskets. However, both Mr. Jekyll and Ambu have another major function that extends beyond the body of the dead and goes on to the spirit. As spirits make their way to the afterlife, Ambu is responsible for weighing the heart of the dead against the feather of Ma'at. If the heart was lighter than the feather, then the dead were allowed to go into paradise, in the Duat, or the afterlife. Those whose hearts were found to weigh more than the feather were consumed into nothingness by a moot. Even though Ampu's jacket appearance and function with the dead can make him out to be a menacing figure, in Egyptian myths he acts as a benign mediator for humans as they venture into the afterlife. And aside from his job dealing with, de with the dead, Ampu is also the patron god of the lost, the wandering, and my favorite, the patron god of orphans. The third character on our list is Mr. Jekyll's partner, Mr. Ibis, who is based on another ancient Egyptian god called Jehuti. Now, Ibis and Jekyll's partnership makes sense, considering that one of the major functions of the god Jehuti was to record the results of all the souls that Ampu would weigh. This made Jehuti venerated by the Egyptians as another god responsible for entrance into the death and afterlife. But aside from this, Jehuti had other functions and is mostly known for his function of wisdom. The ancient Egyptians believed Jehuti to be the god of learning and wisdom attributed him to different intellectual discoveries, including the 365-day calendar, as well as the creation of the Egyptian writing system. One of the famous things that Jehuti is known for is for his book, or it was the Book of Jehuti, a text that is claimed to have 42 books focusing on medicine to astronomy and to magic. This is mirrored in the series American Gods, as we see Mr. Ibis continuously recording stories in a mysterious book that only he has access to. The final character on our list is arguably the most popular and definitely the most mysterious, Bilquis, who is based on the legendary Queen of Sheba. Her legends are harder to cover since there are many different interpretations and versions of her story. In the Abrahamic religions, the Queen of Sheba is known for her famous visit to Israel to visit King Solomon. The name Bilquis is the name given to the Queen of Sheba in the Islamic tradition. However, American gods takes Bilquis to even pre-Abrahamic times and sets her in the Maharam Bilquis, the throne of Bilquis in Yemen. However, the, the temple that she's in in the series is not dedicated to her, but in reality was, was the temple of the moon god. In the show, we also see Bilquis visiting a museum with an Aksumite exhibit. 
Aksum was a major ancient Ethiopian civilization. And although ancient Ethiopia and ancient Yemen share cultural ties, it is in medieval Christian Ethiopia that the story of Queen Sheba takes a whole new light. In this version, the Queen of Sheba is known as Magda, and Ethiopia is the seat of her empire. Similar to, uh, similar to other mainstream Abrahamic beliefs, Magda visits Solomon Israel. However, in this version, the two conceive a child together. The child is named Mirlik. And when Mirlik becomes an adult, he decides to return to Ethiopia. And as he leaves with a large escort of Israelites, he unknowingly takes the Ark of the Covenant with him into Ethiopia, where many believe that it's still there today. The last place that we see Pilkos visit before she makes her way to America is Iran. This is an excellent reference to the 11th century Persian scholar, Al-Tanabi, who popularized the belief that Bilquis was not simply a mortal queen, but was the daughter of a mortal king and a jinn, a supernatural creature that is neither good nor evil, making Bilquis a half-jinn, thus attributing to the supernatural powers that we see on American gods. The team at Humble History was ecstatic to see all these characters on the series and hope to see more African myths on American gods. And that is it for this episode of Humble History. What did you learn from this episode? What is something that we left out? Comment below and join the conversation. In 2015, Marlon James won the coveted Man Booker Award for his novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings. He's back with a striking and fantastic epic, the first of a projected trilogy that draws on African history and mythology. It's called Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and it brings Marlon James back to his studio tonight. Hi. Hi, how are you It's doing? nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Kind of geeking out. <laughs> <laughs> kind of nerding out that you're sitting right here. Uh-huh. Um, your uh, A Brief History of Ki- uh, Seven Killings was based on true events, mm-hmm. uh, but this book is based in a mythical world. Right. Uh, why did you tell the story through a fantastical lens? I think I was always inching towards towards telling. For me, it's not a mythical story so much as a reclaiming myths. Because um, it's one thing when you grow up taking them for granted. It's another thing when you don't have them. And for me, it it just always felt for me that I was going to end up here sooner or later. I made this analogy that if you make rock and roll sooner or later, you have to get to the blues. And and I think if I'm going to continue writing fiction, particularly anything fantastical, I had to go back to histories and imagine histories that I didn't have. Is that where you feel most comfortable? Um... Initially, no, because I'm still a Western person. I grew up with Western myths, and I grew up with, with Christianity and, and so on. So it was, it was as much an education, an education for me as it would have been for, I guess, anybody else. But um, yeah, I just, it, to me, it feels like a, like um, an inevitable direction, so much as a change of focus. And you did a short story a uh, long, long time ago, and it was based in a mystical, in a mytholo- uh, mythical world, wasn't it? trying to remember which one that was i always have a bad, a bad memory of my short stories i probably did that to try it on mm-hmm. sort of try it on for size but not really delving really deep whereas with this book i wanted to almost get lost in it and did you get lost in it i got totally lost in it i got lost several times and and i hope that loss that that adriftness comes over to the reader because i think it should you should be sort of overwhelmed a little bit i mean the current will come back for you 
but there's nothing wrong with it, with, you know, paddling and, and, you know, sort of being a little adrift for a little bit. When you say overwhelmed, what do you mm. mean by the content or the characters? Well, or? Everything. Because one of the things about I found during the research is how complex and multi-layered these stories were and how, if it's an African folktale, chances are the trickster is telling it. So you still have to view it like this may be an unreliable narrator. And it just struck me how there was a time when the listener had to do all this work with a story that we, the readers, don't want to do anymore. So people say it's challenging or it's difficult or it's confused. I'm like, yeah, but there are people who before only listen to stories and they had to just snap into it and figure it out and do some detective work and so on. And I, and I really wanted to get back to that. It's very important to me that it feels like it could be read aloud. Well, I mean, let's talk about the book for a second. Uh, the story is told from the perspective of a character named Tracker, mm-hmm. um, who has a famous nose. Uh, yeah. What motivates Tracker? Man, what motivates Tracker? He doesn't know. He moves from town to town and city to city and bed to bed, and he doesn't really, he doesn't really know. It kind of blindsides him when he comes across the things that are really important. And, and that he needs it. And even when he's surrounded by things he never knew he wanted, he's still kind of the grumpy one in the family. It's very funny, too. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. He, um, like most of my characters, start out in the margins, and then they kind of announce themselves and will not be denied. And next thing I know, the novel is about them. Well, it's kind of good that Tracker can, you know, has the skills to protect himself because he's mm-hmm. got a feisty mouth, right? He really, yeah. My mouth's got me into trouble too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tracker uh, goes on a quest and mm-hmm. uh, he's joined by a shape-shifting um, individual uh, called Leopard. Mm-hmm. Um, any significance behind creating a character that changes forms? Lots of significance. One, I was very fascinated at all the, the where, the W-E-R-E creatures I came across were cats. Because here they're pretty much canine, they're werewolves and so on. Where There it's we're cheetah and we're lion and we're, we're leopards. But the, the shapeshifter is also such a crucial part of African storytelling and African mythology. Um, even Anansi's both spider and man. And that, that whole idea of, of identities shifting plays in so well when we start to talk about orientations shifting or bodies transforming. That all these things that, we, that are such hot-button issues now are things that the African stories resolved thousands of years ago. Even the language, like the pronouns. Yeah, yeah, yeah they resolved that years ago. I was pointing out to an audience last night, said to the Jamaicans, like, have you ever noticed we never needed, we never needed help to, to use them? Mm, them. We always thought that we thought that way anyway. We call single people them. Mm-hmm. So you know, my students think I'm so progressive. I'm like, no, nah, is this a Jamaican accent? <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd, so when I read uh, a book, I usually go to the acknowledgments uh, mm-hmm. just to see what uh, the writer is thinking, what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your acknowledgments, you actually write that my mother is allowed to read yes. all but two pages of this <laughs> book. Uh, why is that? And what are those two pages? So, so there's a running in all my books. There's a running. There's sort of a running gag in all that nonsense about what my mother is allowed to read. <laughs> um, the first one said to my mother, who should not be allowed to read this book. So now she can read Eric too, but I think there's some really intimate goings-on. So my mom is a very devout church lady. So that might be too much. And the goings-on are between men. Mm-hmm. And what struck me reading this book, it was very casual about it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, out of the ordinary. Yeah, but you know, the... the this, you know, Africa has this, an African continent, not African continent, some countries in the continent have this reputation for homophobia, which I thought was really interesting. 
um, because nobody talks about the role in which the evangelical church, American evangelical church, plays into that. That um, from the research, the research I found, things like like queerness, gayness, and so on was stuff that was already accepted and absorbed into all these various African societies from before, which was very shocking and, and affirming to hear. Um, what did it mean to you to find that out as a gay man? Well, it meant, it meant that um, far from what I have been told, that it's sort of an aberration or even something that we, some disease we got infected with by Europeans, that, you know, queerness, otherness, transness has always been part of, of, you know, so many, so much of the African framework. Um, you know, the, the, when we talk about warriors who were, the warriors who were trusted with brides to be because everybody knew they were gay, so nothing was going to happen. Um, that society is, it's not to say that, you know, that societies were like wholly accepted queerness and so on, but they realized the role um, those people played. And um, for me to, to realize that to go, I didn't expect to be go. I didn't expect to go to the past to find validation. I thought, if in the present and hope for the future, maybe we'll be less homophobic. Blah 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 blah. But to find out that we actually were less before. So it's affirming. It's affirming. What I found interesting, though, was with that being said, there is still homophobia. Um, mm. There are still people in the book who um, are excommunicated from their families because mm-hmm. they're gay. Yeah. Um, why? Have that if this is a world that you're imagining and creating. Why because, still have homophobia? Well, because hate is old too, and and prejudice is old too. And I didn't want to. I, I mean, I didn't want to go make a an error in either way, saying everything was all everything was fantastic. But what I think wasn't there is this sort of state side or religion side legit um, endorsement of hate. But religion does come up a little bit. The, uh, mm-hmm. the characters have this thing where they say, F the gods. Uh-huh. And it goes through, um, you know, the book. When you're writing something, is this, is this something that you're struggling with too? So in a way, sometimes. I think um, when... Um, the thing that Tracker probably says is most like me is when he says, I don't believe in belief. Which that is what I'm struggling, I think I struggle with. Not necessarily religion, but the need for it. What does that mean? I don't believe in belief. I don't believe in belief. Um, that to have belief as a system, to have faith as a system, as opposed to knowledge or certainty or so on. Um, you know, to, to put trust in other things and in institutions at the expense of your own intelligence or common sense. And I'm not, I'm not saying these are bad things, but I'm saying that I am in a. I personally know I'm in a in a sort of a permanent limbo with all of that. I don't think I'd ever call myself an atheist. I'm way too cowardly for that. <laughs> but what would that mean, coming from a family uh, having a mother who is a devout believer? But she also became a devout believer later in her years. Um, you know, I don't know if she was questioning before, but I also came out of that. I came out of church, and I went to church. I joined church pretty late. I joined church in my late twenties. But did you join church because you were trying to run away from who you knew to? Oh, absolutely, to be? absolutely. Um, I ended up finding more than that in church. I actually mm-hmm. did find community, and um, and there are things about church which I think people, you know, need to recognize that a lot of in a lot of communities all over the world, church is the glue that holds it together. Um, but I, you know, I had bigger questions, and especially in a church that was very unintellectual. So the whole idea of questions is just anathema. 
to it. And um, and I'm just not, I'm not crazy about dogma, and I'm not crazy about anti-intellectualism. You want to ask questions? I want to ask questions. They don't have to be answered, but I think we should at least consider them. Well, I want to read a passage from, uh, it's weird to read your words when you're <laughs> sitting beside me, but this is uh, in the voice of uh, Tracker. Um, the spirit in the upper branches of this tree was my father talking to me, telling me to kill for my own brother, and the village knew. They came to my uncle's house to ask. The old woman sent word with the children. When will you avenge your brother? The other boys asked me as they taught me to fish. When will you avenge your brother? Each time someone asked the question, the question had new life. After years of wanting to be nothing like my father, I now wanted to be him. Except he was my grandfather. I wanted to be like my grandfather. My grandmother had gone mad from her need for revenge. Why is vengeance a major theme in this book? Um, well, one was some of the research I was doing in Omo Valley and how a lot of the, quite a few of the tribes there are still very much embroiled in blood feuds. Um, and, and, and how much, how that clashes with, with so many um, men, particularly in, in these villages, want to sort of move on. They want to embrace the 21st century. Um, but they'll get a call or a message or a letter. Um, you know, your brother was killed by such and such. He need to be, he needs to be avenged. And that struck me that we're, that the idea of vengeance hasn't yet involved, evolved into justice. And that, that's something that fascinated me. That's something I still think about. And I, you know, and I, I, and I run into it. Um, reading history of everywhere, right, of history of America, or even in, in Jamaica, that there's still, there's still this thing where vengeance and justice are still considered linked. And I wanted to, I wanted to explore that. And I also wanted to, to see where that goes. Um, ultimately, it really doesn't go anywhere. Um, that sounds kind of, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah, well, deflating. Well, yeah, I mean, a mission of vengeance, there's also another thing that I think Dracker says near the end that all he can see is waste. Mm. That all the, the, the potential, all the lives, all the, the, the beauty that we are no, we, we, we've lost because of this. And says, yeah, right now all I see is waste. Well, at one point, Leopard says to Tracker, love or revenge, mm-hmm. you cannot have both. Mm-hmm. Um, and the French share this motto, which is, nobody loves no one, and mm-hmm. it appears throughout the book. Uh, if that, that was is... actually from Chris Isaac, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if that is the case, uh, what would the motivation for any relationship be? I think the motivation for any relationship would be to defy all that. That um, to an extent, a love relationship makes no sense. And that's exactly what's so great about them. Um, they're not rational, and that's what's great about them. That that um, when it works, it defies everything that is wrong in the world. And um, and I think that's important. I think that's something that Tracker himself accidentally falls into and realizes the meaning of that. Maybe too late, but he does. But I do think that... that um, some of the, 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 the most powerful and wonderful things in this world make no sense. Um, you, know, you, can't th- you know, you can't think yourself into love. I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> Same. <laughs> well, we're running out of time, and I have a few more questions to ask you about mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that the ancient Greeks are the only ones who got human nature uh, right. Right. Uh, what did you mean by that? Meaning that they can, still, they can still deal with the complexity of really, really terrible people. 
I think for us, the, the more horrendous the crime is, the quicker we have, this is the, the more urgent for us to reduce the person. We, we, we can't humanize our monsters, and sometimes for valid, valid reasons. But I think the ancient Greeks were very good at, at keeping that complexity, especially moral complexity, when characters have done terrible things. I don't know, in the absence of Greek mythology, I can't imagine Medea existing as a play. Um, or the Oresteo. And I think that they also put their heroes in check in ways in which we still can't. Um, you know, we're, we, we, we're going through, every, every day there's another hero who have, we have found have done horrible things. And um, we go through our own crisis because we don't know how to process the heroism, the acts of the hero, or whatever they've done or accomplished or made with who they are. Which, whereas I think the ancient Greeks figured that out really, really well. Everyone's complex. Everyone's complex, and ultimately your talent isn't yours anyway. Who's is it then? I don't know. The, well, for them, the gods. So, <laughs> which brings us right back to religion. Uh, what draws you to mythology? Um, the stories, the paganism, the... Um, funny enough, the feminism. And the... the, 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 the most of the myths... Quite a few of the myths are really quite very gender equal and very, um, you know, they have been retold in all sorts of ways. So they're almost all of them have been corrupted in one way or another. But it's just such a sensual, sensory, for the most part, equal an equally dangerous world where anything is possible. Well, you are, you describe this book as an African Game of Thrones, and I'm wondering if now you regret saying that? <laughs> Do you regret saying that? Or is, is that I an I don't regret saying it, although I think it's hilarious that it, it, it took off so it took off so much that George R. R. Martin emailed me. And said what? And said, you heard I'm writing an African version of his book. You thought it was delightful. <laughs> well, the, 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 the statement, I don't think he's read the book. Um, I, you know, if it's, if, if, it serves a purpose of promising and in some cases warning people that even though it's a world of make-believe, it's a very adult book, which is what I think Game of Thrones is, then um, I'm fine with it. Uh, in a talk you gave at Pembroke College in the UK, you said that any reader of Marvel comics and fantasy uh, knows how, to, how it feels to feel insignificant. Mm -hmm. um, when have you felt insignificant? Um, growing up, growing up as a, growing up in the suburbs, growing up as a nerd, sissy, growing up in, in all sorts of environments where people make it a job to reduce you, um, and turning to stuff like comics, particularly comics like X-Men, which is also a bunch of rejects. Um, I always say reading X-Men is a lot like being an X-Man, and, and I still believe it, um, that, the, you know, that, then you find community in a fellow outcast which is what I found as well from high school um, coming up. But yeah, but also writing is a lonely profession and writing is sometimes in isolation, certainly when I was growing up and, and, and doing it. Um, so yeah, I think... Um now my thoughts on this, on this African uh, mythology. Now what is the meaning of mythology myth? Mythology is the meaning of defined as um, collection of myths, especially one belongs to a particular religious or beings of tradition. Okay, mythology. Now, myth, myth is myth. 
as defined as a traditional story, especially one considering the early history of the people or um, explaining uh, social phenomena and a typically about, I guess it's basically still the exact same thing of mythology, um, typically of a culture of a thing. Culture. Uh, so mythology is something of um, culture, tradition, of recognizing of something like like Christianity is a mythology of belief of God and Jesus Christ, mythology of a culture of religion, also a culture of tradition. Now, I did not understand at first until I actually did research about African mythology. But I will honestly say I did not know there was an African mythology out there. So I had to do research. I did not understand it. But I understand the culture of Africa. The uh, Africans and the cultures of, uh, let's see, uh, certain parts of Africa, they practice voodoo. So all this is basically extraterrestrial of the universe that gives off things to, um, uh, let's see, other than vibration and sound and energy. But this is basically um, that I'm looking at. It is African reality, basically an African god, a very African god. So all these gods, like these goddesses of women, the knowledge, feminine, feminine power, you know, the moon, people that worship the moon and all knowledge the moon have their god of worship, that's their choice, that's their god. Some, some black folks acknowledge the sun, they worship their sun, that's their god. Um, but everything has a meaning, you know, so the Bible puts it as you should not uh, kneel down to other gods because I'm a jealous God. See, so people have their own mythology or tradition they want to get into. So this African theology uh, or mythology of God is acknowledging uh, this God that basically um, is the African God that can cause silence thunder. Cause thunder. You know? and, um, this is basically taking place that you know certain you know certain African Americans practice of acknowledging um, African uh, mythology. It's like you know some people that acknowledge uh, Greek mythology. You know Christianity is basically mythology. <clears throat> you know, so this African mythology is a tradition that people, you know, uh, acknowledge as worship, and um, basically it's an ancient, ancient thing, you know, that has to do with, you know, elements of earth, uh, let's see, fire, and <clears throat> wind, ground, all the elements of the earth. So we as people, I'm starting to think, you know, I got my own individual belief. You know, I believe that man, that comes from the Bible, the Bible explains what man is and what man is placed for. Understand, understand, because to me, it seems like the Bible speaks more, the Bible, the Holy Bible, it speaks more of you being the deity, the lowercase deity called God, and you the on the earth. So I, I am open-minded to learn different of different things. Like the Native American man, the Native American man does not acknowledge Jesus. No, the Native American man does not, the Native Americans 
does not acknowledge God. He acknowledged the uh, nature of um, the spirit of the everlasting sky and the nature of the nature of basically supernatural. You know what I'm saying? Because I never seen or heard a Native American, Native American person acknowledge Jesus. No. But um, understand the Native American, the Native American people when they say woe to the four wounds, meaning woe to the power of the the power effect of the nature of the wind, how how strong the wind blows. So me, I look at uh, this whole mythology of African mythology. It's interesting to me. I'm still learning. Like I'm still um, I'm trying to learn these, the names of these certain goddesses and god of African people of mythology of African mythology. So. <clears throat> Just like Zeus, Zeus is mythology of Greek mythology. You have Hades, you have uh, Apollo, you have uh, Poseidon, you have all these uh, mythologies of people that choose to individual cultures of people choose to acknowledge and worship. You know what I'm saying? Just like Voodoo, Voodoo is a religion. But then Voodoo is the it's the history of Voodoo that Voodoo was used to of certain black folks that wants to keep away from the slave master of the French. So voodoo was used is basically as people say it's satanic. No, it can be used to be satanic of evil, but it's basically a culture of mythology of worshiping of a religion of regarding the universe. The uh, the, uh, the um, how can I say this? The, uh, this whole thing of I wouldn't say it's astronomy. It's basically working with spirits also spells whatever <clears throat> but it's universal it's astro it's astro you know what i'm saying it's it's all that you know what i'm saying all this you know voodoo works by energy based it works by vibration based it works by ancestors it works by spiritual uh events you know <clears throat> but mythology african mythology is basically of the african culture or not of acknowledging of african people basically are considered deities. Just like the Quran, like the Nation of Islam would say, the black man was here first. The black man is a uh, a deity of a god. I heard when the Muslims say the black man is the first was first was here first. And the Caucasian race came forth out the black man throughout from the, the uh, let's see, you have the black germ and the brown germ. That's Elijah Muhammad's teaching. So um so this whole African mythology is basically talking about black black gods, black deities, black gods, black deities. Black woman is a certain, it's a black woman that's basically is a black goddess. You know what I'm saying? Um, a black man, the black race, the African race is uh, black deities that works on um, viewing themselves of their beauty and looking at themselves in the mirror on top of the moon and things of nature to extract and take energy stuff research from the earth. So, but understand what God is. Understand what these deities is. A deity named Jehovah. In the Bible, Jehovah, that basically mythology of the Christians, they believe in the Jews, <clears throat> whoever, they believe in this, this deity uh, named Jehovah. Jehovah said in the Bible, in Genesis, that he created man. <clears throat> okay? So Jehovah says, as in his culture of mythology, Jehovah says, I make man after my image and likeness. Okay. <clears throat> so just like Zeus, Zeus said the exact same thing. 
I make man to worship me. So these are deities that you don't even see. But within that mythology, the deity that you do see that people right now is a deity. You know what I'm saying? In a way, because human beings are at the very top of the food chain as superior. But within that, the dumbest. But we are superior to the lower creatures of the earth. You know? So understand this with which people are not going to see it this way because of how you've been taught in your own individual white and black family. But see, I look, I, I, I am open to learn the, the mythology of Egyptian. I, I am um, open to learn the mythology of belief of voodoo. I am even openly minded to learn about the mythology of moon worship and sun worship. This is what I'm open to. I'm open minded to learn about different things. This is what this this, this is what is called of knowledge. This is what it calls. This is what it's called of building knowledge. You know what I'm saying? So how I've been taught, I, I came from, and I've been taught in a religion called uh, Christianity. So I, I never, at that time, like I do now, I understand what Christianity is. I never asked the question, what is Christianity? So I've been taught just like, you know, some black children been taught in Christianity in the Western world. We've been taught like this is the truth, this is what we know. But never even do the research to learn the description about our uh, religion in our home been taught by our parents to this very day about the son of man that you say he's the son of God but after the fact you say he's the son of man so you're basically confused so I asked the question I stepped away from the Christian faith you know I stepped away from the Christian faith because my mother she's a Jehovah Witness and a Jehovah Witness of their history of the Jehovah Witness of this mythology that this man named Charles T. Russell basically explain his opinion about God, Jehovah, in his way of his organization, of the watchtower of his organization, uh, organization of Jehovah's organization that he basically started. This is a man started. So this is all man's point of view of mythology of God. But then that you have to realize what nature is. So animals don't have a deity that they kneel to over culture. Animals are just animals. They just live their lives by instinct. So me, I believe that God works in nature. I believe that, you know, us humans present ourselves as God and devil by the decisions and deeds that we do. I believe that the earth was already here, but it has something to do how everything came forth. It has something to do with, uh, let's see, um, how can I say this? It's on the top of my tongue. How can I say this? It has something to do with, uh, uh, Mm, astro, astro terrestrial. That's why I'm I'm starting to think, you know. Say so I'm starting to think it's because you know the prophet um Daniel would been taken up on the wheel, a wheel that looks more of a UFO. So I'm thinking all all this had to occur by astro terrestrial that we are not alone in the universe. So mankind still fear of something that they don't, we don't understand. But truth is coming to pass more and more as man evolve and continue to expand and grow by procreation and evolve and all that so i see that technology is coming more into play technology is man's greatest weapon to advance <clears throat> technology is man's greatest weapon to elevate and evolve through science into technology what you see today so to me the african uh, mythology to me is interesting when it comes to the culture of african People, because you, you have African American people that are into this mythology of uh, African mythology. You know, saying I never knew 
it was an African mythology. I'll be honest. But since I now I know and maybe want to do more research about it when I go live on Facebook to talk about uh, on a particular day about African mythology. So, yeah. Dre Wise, my name. Dre Wise Conqueror. Of course, hit me up on my cash app. Send a small donation or whatever you, you choose to send them a donation. Uh, let's see. Follow me on Facebook. Well, I let my social media uh, commercial tells that tell all the information. You guys have you have you guys have a wonderful wonderful morning on this Sunday called Easter Passover. Have a wonderful Sunday. Peace and farewell. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor Africa? What up, the whole entire world, Spotify? Follow me on my Facebook account that is Dre Wise Conqueror. Also, look for uh, and check out my, um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video of Catastatics, produced, edited by me, Dre Wise. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and CastBox and Apple Podcast. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look forward and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video, exercise video, brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me. Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise, counter, counter, peace, and farewell, and stay tuned.